Part 6. And he goes on. It seems as one grows older that the past has another pattern and ceases to be mere sequence or even development, the latter a partial fallacy encouraged by superficial notions of evolution, which becomes in the popular minds a means of disowning the past. And if it's an incarnating cosmos, uh, it means a cosmos that gets that is not uh, not an assembly line cosmos that's coming up with a final product, uh, but one in which the in which the uh, breaking in of the mystery into the mundane occurs uh, unexpectedly in moments where eternity drops into time and the mystery drops into the mundane. That's why he just tried to disabuse us of this idea of what is the end in a final sense and ask what is the point. I think that's what he's, the issue he's raising. The moments of happiness, not in the sense of well-being, fruition, fulfillment, security, or affection, or even a very good dinner, but the sudden illumination, we had the experience and missed the meaning. What if we were to all find out, and, and uh, statistically it would be more likely to be true than not true, what if we were to all find out that the most important moments in our whole lives have already been lived? See? Now the next most important moment would be the moment when I discover when the first most important one happened, and something about it. But we live thinking what's important is about out there somewhere. And if I handle myself correctly, I'll rendezvous with it. And, and Elliot is saying it's much more mysterious than that. The moments of happiness are really moments of illumination, moments of epiphany. And that when they happen to us, Happiness comes from the word which means just the next thing to happen. Happen, Happiness comes from the same word for happen. So whatever happens is happiness once we have, once we're in the right frame of mind. But when it, what we call happiness is the, is the, the uh, affirmation we feel when we experience a breaking in, in some imperfect way, to be sure, of the mystery into our lives. And we experience that as happiness. And what we do is we think, wow, that was nice. Let me look at the things that led up to it. Well, I did this and this and this, and then it happened. So then I spend the next ten years of my life doing this and this and this in that order. To try to make sure it would happen again. And Elliot says there comes a moment when you can go back and you can, well, look what he says. We had the experience but missed the meaning. An approach to the meaning restores the experience in a different form beyond any meaning we can assign to happiness. And we discover, in retrospect, something about that moment which has very little to do with the way in which we measure happiness. As my friend Ruth Allen said, it's never too late to have had a happy childhood. Okay? 
one can go back and discover those moments that were of ultimate importance. So Elliot goes on, I've said before that the past experience revived in the meaning is not the experience of one life only, but of many generations. So when we do this, we become part of the communion of saints. We do something on behalf of everyone. That's the other thing that the... Uh, I think it's... I think it's the author of The Cloud of Unknowing says, he says, um, there'll come moments in this contemplative work when you will think, uh, gee, I ought to be doing something for humanity. He said, don't, don't you worry, you are. Okay. So Elliot says, I've said before that the past experience revived in the meaning is not the experience of one life only, but of many generations. Not forgetting something that is probably quite ineffable, the backward look behind the assurance of recorded history, the backward half-look over the shoulder towards the primitive terror. This comes back to the, what he started with about it's not a sequence or a development. What we're looking back beyond is not some vast stretch of time. We're not looking back beyond history. What we're looking back beyond is the assurance. And we, if we, look, we can look beyond the assurance at yesterday's headline. We don't have to be looking at Neanderthal man. And if we look beyond the assurance, what we see is the primitive terror. And it wouldn't be terrifying if, if we could safely relegate it to, the, to uh, Neanderthal man or to some bygone age. Now we come to discover that the moments of agony are likewise permanent, with such permanence as time has. Now I skip the parentheses. He says the moments of agony, whether or not due to misunderstanding, having hoped for the wrong things or dreaded the wrong things, is not in question. But the moments of agony are likewise permanent with such permanence as time has. We appreciate this better in the agony of others, nearly experienced involving ourselves, than in our own, for our own past is covered by the currents of action. But the torment of others remains an experience unqualified, unworn by subsequent attrition. So we have these instinctive ways of, of, um, of immunizing ourselves from our own past uh, agony. But we... So it's harder for us to re-experience our own than it is for us to see it in others. People change and smile, but the agony abides. Time the destroyer is time the preserver. And now he's going to, I think, come to a little minor crescendo here in the poem. Time the destroyer is time the preserver, Remember he started, we, we made the point, uh, the poem is named after something that was once called the Three Savages and is now called the Dry Salvages. Time the Destroyer is time the preserver, and now he's going to liken time the destroyer and preserver to two things. The river is the first. Like the river, 
with its cargo of dead Negroes, cows, and chicken coops. The bitter apple and the bite in the apple. Now, wait a minute. The last we saw of the river, it was remaining somewhat tame. We had bridged it and uh, taken control of it, and it was tolerating that. We were, we were told that it was watching and waiting and still... Uh, uh, liable to do something else, but uh, we moved on to the sea, and now he comes back, and in one line tells us a lot. Like the river with its cargo of dead Negroes, cows, and chicken coops. Now, he had said that the river had become uh, hardly noticeable anymore by the people, by the dwellers in cities, the worshippers of the machine. But suddenly it's in flood stage. And all of what is eliminated from the city comes up again. Right? The city means the civitas, means the civilization. City people are, are supposed to be civilized people. So it's suddenly, when the river is in flood stage, the civilized people look out there and see dead Negroes floating in the river at flood stage. And uh, they're forced, if they have their wits about them, to question the depth of their civilization. At flood stage, it produces the bodies of dead Negroes. And then we realize that this river that is in us hasn't been tamed either. The bitter apple and the bite in the apple. If you think that it is progressive and that we have gotten beyond it, Eliot says, think again. We have just... If, you're, if you can maintain that myth, it is probably because it has been a few years since the river was at flood stage. But it'll be there again because it involves the bitter apple and the bite in the apple. And then the second analogy to the time of the destroyer's time of preserver and the ragged rock in the restless waters. Now we're to the title of the poem. The ragged rock in the restless waters. Waves wash over it, fogs conceal it. On a halcyon day, it is merely a monument. In navigable weather, it is always a sea mark to lay a course by. But in the somber season, or the sudden fury, is what it always was. Now, I think there is something here which picks up on the, on the paradox or intentional ambiguity uh, in that parenthesis with which the poem begins. The three savages and the dry salvages are both present here in the ragged rock. Eliot so often has used the rock to refer to the church. 
and what if because I, I said I think Eliot is doing something in his way comparable to what Rene Girard is doing in his. Both are rediscovering the uh, Christian mysteries at a deeper place. To discover um, the church and its work in the world, to be a ragged rock in restless waters is quite a discovery. Most people had thought that it was a worry stone in a wish pond. And Eliot is saying it's a ragged rock in restless waters. Waves wash over it. Fogs conceal it. On a halcyon day, it is merely a monument. In navigable weather, it is always a sea mark to lay a course by. But in the somber season, or the sudden fury, is what it always was. Which is that combination that he started the poem with. It is the rock which will wreck the ship and save the crew. That's what I have learned from this passage of this poem that the church as the ragged rock in the restless waters will be all of these nice, comfortable things in ordinary times. But in the extraordinary times, it will be what it has always been, something that will shatter, will wreck the ship, the ship being the, the conventional uh, conveyance, the 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 uh, the myth in which we are contained, and save the crew. Uh, the uh, local newspaper came by to uh, chat about the go- the uh, the Christmas stories and the Gospels a few weeks ago, and uh, and the article came out last week, and I was uh, I was misquoted enough to sound interesting. And uh, one of uh, one of the things that he one of the things that he said in there was that uh, in these weekly seminars uh, I rely on things such as Homer, uh, T. S. Eliot, and the newspaper, which ca- occasionally I do. But in order to kind of live up to that, uh, I wanted to start off this morning with a with a newspaper uh, piece. Eliot is concerned in these poems, among other things, with the fact that we moderns are trapped in a, a purely chronological experience of time, and we, have, we are not prepared for those moments of illumination, those moments of epiphany, those moments of breakthrough, when something else comes in and uh, gives us a hint of another dimension that uh, were we all saints, we would be attending to constantly. So in, with that as the background, and of course this piece I'm about to quote is uh, much closer to the surface of things, but just, to, just to, to deal with the symptoms of the problem perhaps, Ellen Goodman had a column uh, in, uh, in the Tuesday paper, and uh, I've ex- uh, excerpted it, and this, so here it is. 
I'm watching an ad for a new television set that offers a screen within its screen. The beauty of this technology, I'm told, is that it lets the viewer watch one channel while scanning the other. If you're into double vision, it actually lets you watch two channels at the same time. I'm convinced that this is a product of superb marketing strategy. It is attuned to the updated and speeded-up notions of efficiency and time management which now rule our lives. Remember the quaint needle-pointed idea taught by childhood teachers, one thing at a time? It is time to admit that most adults are leading split-screened lives. Nobody who is anybody just does one thing anymore. Our burgeoning breed of new one-minute managers, inputters, and maximizers of potential have come to believe that those who do two things at once get twice as much accomplished. (laughs) Busyness itself is no longer a symptom of workaholism, but a badge of efficiency. Such twofers as dialing and driving have become status symbols for executives. It isn't considered ditzy anymore to drink coffee, apply makeup, and insert contact lenses while commuting to work. (laughs) It's seen perversely as being well-organized. This double and triple shifting comes with its own technology. We are able to watch one television program while taping a second, vacuum while talking on a portable telephone, bike 20 miles on an exercycle while studying Swahili from a tape, and log on to our portable computer in an airport waiting room, and so we do. What's behind all this is the true passion of the times, a lust for productivity. Remember the pursuit of the elusive simultaneous orgasm? We now pursue the illusion of simultaneous accomplishments. This idea of simultaneous accomplishments fuels the favorite fantasy of the decade that if we were only more organized and blessed with all the proper electronic helpers, we would be able to squeeze at least two lives into the time for one. Instead of making choices, we think we can make time. Well, it's it's a humorous article, really, but um, it has to do, I think, with uh, how it is that we have crammed chronological time uh, as though we sense that its fundamental emptiness might be compensated for if we crammed it full enough of busyness and activity. And since we're still haunted by its emptiness, we cram ever the more, hoping that its meaninglessness can be overcome by activity that results in products or accomplishments. Well, Eliot says, into that kind of existence, occasionally something comes. And he has used a number of little images for that moment when something else breaks in. One of them he has used earlier and he will use again in the material we look at today, is winter lightning. A flash, a moment, when uh, in the the dead of winter, when suddenly something else comes into the picture for a second. (coughs) So I have another newspaper article to uh, quote from, a, a piece by Anatoly Broyard from the New York Times Magazine, Maureen Draper sent this to me, and I received it on the same day that I read the uh, Ellen Goodman piece. So here's what he says. So much of a writer's life consists of assumed suffering, rhetorical suffering, 
that I felt something like relief, even elation, when the doctor told me that I had cancer of the prostate. Suddenly there was in the air a rich sense of crisis, real crisis, yet one that also contained echoes of ideas like the crisis of language, the crisis of literature, or of personality. It seemed to me that my existence, whatever I thought, felt, or did, had taken on a kind of meter, as in poetry or in taxis. The way my friends have rallied around me is wonderful. They remind me of a flock of birds rising from a body of water at sunset. If that image seems a bit extravagant or tinged with satire, it's because I can't help thinking there's something comical about my friend's behavior, all these witty men suddenly saying pious, inspirational things. They are not intoxicated as I am by my illness, but sobered. Since I refuse to, they've taken on the responsibility of being serious. They appear abashed or chagrined in their sobriety. Stripped of their playfulness, these pals of mine seem plainer, homelier, even older. It's as if they had all gone bald overnight. Yet one of the effects of their fussing over me is that I feel vivid, multicolored, sharply drawn. On the other hand, and this is ungrateful, I remain outside of their solicitude, their love and best wishes. I'm isolated from them by the grandiose conviction that I am the healthy person and they are the sick ones. Like the existential hero, I have been cured by the truth while they still suffer the nausea of the uninitiated. So Elliot said, time the destroyer is time the preserver. Section 3 begins with the line, I sometimes wonder if that is what Krishna meant, among other things, or one way of putting the same thing, that the future is a faded song, a royal rose or a lavender spray of wistful regret for those who have not, excuse me, for those who are not yet here to regret pressed between yellow leaves of a book that has never been opened. And the way up is the way down, and the way forward is the way back. You cannot face it steadily, but this thing is sure, that time is no healer. The patient is no longer here. I want to spend a little time on these three remarkable lines. The future is a faded song, a royal rose or a lavender spray of wistful regret for those who are not yet here to regret, pressed between yellow leaves of a book that has never been opened. Now that is a piece of first-class prophetic pronouncement for the modern Western world. Earlier in East Coker, Eliot had uh, provided, so to speak, poetic instruction on how we might properly attend to the past. Uh, he said, for instance, there is a time for evening under starlight, a time for evening under lamplight, the evening with the photograph album. Love is most nearly itself where here and now cease to matter. So he encouraged us to, to recall that evening with the photograph album. And uh, 
notice that in that moment, neither here nor there, neither uh, now or the past, really mattered. And then, and that that had, I think, to do with with concrete personal memories, photograph album. But then, when it came to moments, past moments, these moments of little moments of epiphany or, or of illumination which are remembered later and which have to do with, have awakened deeper and vaguer senses of longing. Uh, and he w- suggested we return to those. He said, and he provides metaphors for them, a whisper of running stream, winter lightning, the wild thyme and the wild strawberry, the laughter in the garden, echoed ecstasy, not lost, but requiring, pointing to the agony of death and birth. So he said, "There's we must, we must, we don't leave those behind, particularly those moments when something other than the kind of chronological time frame that we usually are caught up in, when something other than that is breaking in, um, the evening under lamplight with the photograph out, or the memory of the, of the moment in the rose garden or the moment uh, uh, where the wild time was unseen or the laughter in the garden. So all those are echoed ecstasy and not to be lost but requiring a further probing. But now he is saying that we should now turn around and apply the same kind of approach to future expectations. That the future itself can be regarded similarly. That the future is really pressed between the leaves of a book that has never, the yellow leaves of a book that has never been opened. The future towards which we strive is as quaint and forlorn and curiously antiquated as those strivings we now look back upon as the product of adolescent innocence, ignorance, or naivete. The future is just as full of pathos as the past. And he would awaken us to that. Camus said the future is the last refuge of metaphysical hope for a people without God. And Eliot would would, uh, cut us off from projecting into the future. He said in East Coker, wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Well, what a piece of revelation it is for us who are so tilted in the direction of the future. Maybe it's the future of this afternoon or next week or next year. Or maybe it's the future of the the 21st century. Or maybe it's evolution. Or it doesn't matter. Eliot is trying to cut us off from a from a uh, a an exclusive reliance on that for solving the human dilemma. So the future is a faded song, a royal rose or a lavender spray of wistful regret for those who are not yet here to regret. Press between yellow leaves of a book that has never been opened. When we get to that future, which we, which we either consciously or semi-consciously think of as, as the time when everything will be better, 
that future will be inhabited by people who are nostalgic. And about the time I was thinking about all this, I got a letter from Marlies Russen uh, from Germany. And in the letter, she, uh, she wrote, obviously, about the events that are taking place in Europe right now. And in the letter, she quoted from an article in Die Zeit in which uh, Martin Ahrens has the following comments. Uh, speaking, obviously, about the, the, the wall coming down between East and West Germany. I read this to you as, a, as an echo of Eliot's saying, uh, the future is a lavender spray of wistful regret. So here's the way Marlies translated the article. There they were, walking in the dust of the border, standing in front of glaring cameras, and they remember the gestures they have seen on TV. Now they too are supposed to be on TV. And we watch how they kiss the earth or the poor trampled grass. Freedom. Freedom. This freedom is always some other place. It's always the freedom one longs for, never the freedom one has. Perhaps in a few years they will remember the freedom they had in the East with tender <coughs> memories. They dreamt the sleep of sleeping beauty a sleep which not they but their system caused, and so they slept in good conscience, dreamt of the beautiful prince whom they expected while all around the walls grew higher and higher, <coughs> waiting, dreaming, wasting time. That is, or was, the freedom of the East. Now, after 28 years, not a prince, but the glaring lights of the TV cameras of the West awaken the sleepers. And now what seemed a sweet dream seems nothing but useless laziness. One will have to catch up with the West. The cold light that now illumines all the cobweb corners makes one feel ashamed. Bad cars, simple clothing, poor food, it didn't seem to matter terribly before. Now it is humiliating. Now it is no longer something noble. The long road, it seems, only returns to the beginning. All right then, Mr. King and Mrs. Queen, wake up. Wake up, you servants and cooks. A good slap on the back for the boy in the kitchen so he realizes there's work to do. But not only the East, the West, too, has lost a dream. The dream that behind those crumbling walls and in that rather scary castle slept the most beautiful princess waiting for the day of her awakening. All right, then. Go and invest your capital. Send your renovation troops. But remember what you lose by intruding on the freedom of the East. To not be on the treadmill of capitalism, to not produce the hell out of investments, to not produce and sell and consume, that is the freedom of the East. <coughs> Troops of busy entrepreneurs, salesmen, advertising people 
were not needed in the castle behind the high walls. The aggression needed for such endeavors lays waste an empty field with the most beautiful weeds that bloomed and blossomed in profusion, which, so far as it did not anguish over being a weed, was content, wild, self-sufficient, of no particular use to anyone. Now it's like childhood, irrelevant. Now, you know, one thrills with what's going on in, in Europe. Uh, certainly our household, uh, Katie met great friends uh, in, in Eastern Europe and the Soviet <coughs> Union who, uh, who long for this day, you see. And so there's a great, there's a great uh, joy and celebration about what's going on. Uh, but the hard prophetic statement of Eliot uh, is that uh, these wonderful events should not lead us to conclude that the future will be inhabited by people who are not nostalgic. Happiness demands that we not have everything we want. And even for the modestly affluent in the West, this condition for happiness has been lost. The anxious ennui that one used to see on the faces of royalty or on the third generation of the Vanderbilts and the Carnegies, one can now see in all the shopping malls of America. <clears throat> the future is a faded song, a royal rose or lavender spray of wistful regret for those who are not yet here to regret. I'd like to pause on a, the way Eliot put that and alter it slightly to get at what I think may have been his subtle innuendo. As you know, Eliot has used the Rose Garden prominently in these poems as a, uh, a memory of a moment, a fleeting moment, in which suddenly, against all the physical evidence, uh, the pool was filled with water out of sunlight. And then it vanished. And those moments are the moments of illumination he would have us uh, hallow as the really important moments. And they are anticipations, Eliot's a student of Dante, uh, they are anticipations of the, of the paradisal rose that Dante puts at the, at the uh, culmination of the paradiso. And so Eliot is orienting us between those two, th that little hint of it and the, and the final culmination of it, the beatific vision. So we get a hint of what can become in life the experience of the incarnation and at the moment of death the beatific vision. So that's the road. But here we have something called the royal rose. He says the royal rose, if you'll allow me to put it this way, the royal rose becomes a lavender spray of wistful regret. If we have not required further, inquired or required further into these moments, the moments in the Rose Garden, uh, if they are merely lost, they fall back into the unconscious and there become vague longings for I know not what. A longing which is more potent for being vague 
So we miss the meaning. And if the meaning is not restored by an approach to the true meaning, the missed meaning begins to exert, exert a pull on our lives. I think maybe, Elliot, in using the term royal rose, is hinting at the War of Roses, in which the rose became the chief symbol for the chief symbol of civil war in England, the white rose and the red rose in the 15th century. If that's the poetic hint here, it's as though he's saying the moment in the rose garden, if it is not reconsidered properly, will stir longings which, having no other uh, uh, expression except uh, a chronological one, will become organized attempts to achieve the echoed ecstasy. The Royal Rose symbolizes, I think, any collective utopian idea germinated in the vague memory of the Rose Garden and stranded in the appetency on the meddled ways of time past and time future. And so stranded projected into the future as a possible political, economic, or psychological accomplishment. In other words, these hints are guessed at, but wrongly guessed at and become history. Etymologically, I think I said this earlier, etymologically happiness means what happens. but not what I make happen. This is another one of the uh, curious contradictions in life. Calculated results are never happy ones. Though the time and energy we spend on accomplishing them uh, disincline us to admit that. Calculated results always conclude in wistful regrets. The Christian tradition is one which proclaims that the most important event in history happened 2,000 years ago. Now, that ought to have some effect on uh, how we think of past, present, and future. And I think that's what Eliot is suggesting in this poem. So the moment in the Rose Garden, if it's not approached anew, if nothing further is required of it, becomes through a subtle process of transmutation and collectivization, history. The royal rose always becoming the lavender spray of wistful regret. And it becomes infected with the mimesis of history. It becomes on the banner the royal rose and in the palace corridors and in the streets and in the battlefields the war of roses. And we've been there before. The future is a faded song. Well, that, that's just a meditation on uh, how radical what Eliot is saying is in terms of the moment-by-moment, day-by-day attitudes that we have towards our lives. 
he started by saying, I sometimes wonder if that is what Krishna meant. Now, Eliot studied uh, uh, Hindu literature and Sanskrit at, at Harvard, and uh, the, its effect on him is fairly well known. I was struck by one uh, critic, the way one critic put it, Philip Headings put it this way, No serious student of Eliot's poetry can afford to ignore his early and continued interest in the Bhagavad Gita. No work is more relevant except Dante's Divine Comedy. Now, that is a mouthful. It's clear that Dante's Divine Comedy would probably be the most relevant background material to Eliot's work. But it is not clear to me, except I, I, I defer to headings, it is not clear to me that anything other than the Bible and Shakespeare would uh, come in second. Uh, but headings says the Bhagavad Gita. So that's a, that's a mouthful. The, Arjuna is arrayed for battle, and there on the battlefield before him are the conflicting forces of each of, of the two sides, and Arjuna has relatives on both in both camps, uh, but he has uh, he has commitments to one, and so he must join that side and fight fight uh, the other side that contains relatives of his which, of course, is a perfect parallel for any uh, European or person from European culture thinking about World War II, which is when this poem is written. So Eliot very much is in the position of an Arjuna. And Krishna says to Arjuna, The seers truly say that he is wise who acts without lust or scheming for the fruit of the act. His act falls from him, its chain broken, melted into the flame of my knowledge. Turning his face from the fruit, he needs nothing. The Atman is enough. He acts and is beyond action. Now see, this is another piece of revelation. How many of you have thought that the action has a chain that must be broken and that it needs to fall from you. What, what's the alternative to that? You, you get dragged down by all these actions, the, the chains of which have not been broken. They accumulate and become character or personality or habit. The Bhagavad Gita and Eliot are suggesting that acts have fruits. Now, instead of thinking of fruits and results as just synonyms, what if we were to think of them as different things? What if we were to think that the Bhagavad Gita is not even interested in results? It's only interested in fruits. In the West, we're only interested in results. But the Bhagavad Gita is interested in fruits. Jesus says of the false prophets, you will, by their fruits you will know them. This may be talking about something else. Obviously it's a metaphor. But I think we could stimulate ourselves by saying, if my act may have a result, which is one thing, and it ha may have this other thing, which is a fruit. And I'm blinded to everything but the result. And so I don't understand acts at all. 
in terms of Bhagavad Gita and what else is driving out, I don't even know what I'm doing. Because what's really important about what I'm doing doesn't even register for me. All I think about is the result. But something else happens. The fruit. Now, activities have fruits. And it's the fruits that are interesting. But I must not be attached to the fruit. It's as though the Bhagavad Gita never even thought about being attached to the results, for goodness sake. So uninteresting are the results. The only thing that would that would tempt us into, into attachment would be the fruits. With that as a little background, we return, the poem returns to the metaphor of the train. Now, the, uh, in, in Burnt Norton and in East Coker, in, in each case, in section three, Eliot had used the image of the train, the commuter train, the, the train where the commuters sat with strained, time-ridden faces, distracted from distraction by distraction. And in East Coker, the underground train that stops in the tube too long between stations. So he had used the commuter train. And now he's going to use the train again. But this time it's a metaphor for life itself. It's a train that travels. This is the American quartet. It's the train that travels across the continent. It's a train that goes, is really a metaphor for the whole of life. It's a train that goes for a hundred sleepy hours. When the train starts and the passengers are settled to fruits, periodicals, and business letters, Notice right away the word fruits, picking up on the Bhagavad Gita. What do we settle ourselves to as the train ride of our lives gets underway? How, how are we enculturated? Are we enculturated with the Bhagavad Gita insight? Well, no, that's not our enculturation. We are carefully uh, enculturated to attend to the fruits, the periodicals, another little reference to the, the time factor, and the business letter. That's, how, that's what we are trained to regard. And those who saw them off have left the platform, so the, the, la the, the, the last generation that launched us on this journey has now gone. Their faces relaxed from grief into relief to the sleepy rhythm of a hundred hours. Fair forward, travelers, not escaping from the past into different lives or into any future. To escape from the past or to escape into the future is the name of the game for us. And here's the prophetic voice breaking in, saying, fair forward, do not escape. You are not the same people who left that station or who will arrive at any terminus. While the narrowing rails slide together behind you and on the deck of the drumming liner, watching the furrow that widens behind you, you shall not think the past is finished and the future is before us. At nightfall, in the rigging and the aerial, is a voice discanting. Though not to the ear, the murmuring shell of time, and not in any language. 
fare forward, you who think you are voyaging. You are not those who saw the harbor receding or those who will disembark. Here between the hither and the farther shore, while time is withdrawn, consider the future and the past with an equal mind. Consider the future and the past with an equal mind. Now, how that really is the the bottom line on these on this third section of the quartet. Consider the future and the past with an equal mind. Here's what Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita: Whatever man remembers at the last, when he is leaving the body will be realized by him in the hereafter because that will be what his mind has most constantly dwelt on during his life. But Eliot changes that slightly. Or one might say he changes that profoundly. And he says, at the moment which is not of action or inaction, you can receive this. On whatever sphere of being the mind of man may be intent at the time of death, that is the one action, and the time of death is every moment, which shall fructify in the lives of others. Fructify. Bear fruit. But now, bear fruit in the lives of others. And since we have just been reminded about bearing fruit, we have to get the next reminder, which is, and do not think of the fruit of action. If we are community, if we are uh, uh, parts of one another, if, if there is a, the mystical body or the communion of saints, then it's not a matter of me saving my soul or you saving your soul, but of uh, fructifying in, in one another's lives. And there's only one way to do it, to die, die to self. It would be, see, it would be nice if we could do it, but die to self. I'm, I'm using these terms, but I think that's implicit in here. Now, would that we could do it by sitting up here and saying witty things about literature. <laughs> it would be a lot nicer, a lot safer. And the time of death is every moment. And then we have to be reminded, and do not think of the fruit of action. My life is a great curiosity to me. I, I thought this week, uh, my father died in the Battle of the Bulge, and I thought, well, he probably died with his mind intent on the fact that he had never seen his child, and it has been fructifying in my life for 45 years. It's just a way of thinking, you know. But I've often wondered what it is that's been fructifying in my life. But maybe it was something uh, on which the mind of someone was intent at the time of death. The Annunciation is, the Annunciation is, be it done according to thy will. That's to say, the Annunciation, which attends perfectly to the Incarnation, uh, is a... Uh, renounced is a declaration that my life does not belong to me. 
Now there, you talk about heresy. My life. <laughs> it doesn't belong to me. It actually belongs to you more than it belongs to me, and it belongs to God more than it belongs to either one of us. You got to go on with the poem. O voyagers, O seamen, you who come to port and you whose bodies suffer the trial and judgment of the sea, or whatever event, this is your real destination. Your real destination is to uh, leave evidence in the lives of others of the Incarnation. And meanwhile, the moments of, uh, that are echoes of the Incarnation are happening to us all the time. The moment when, when my, uh, when time and eternity commingle, or the moments when my mortality and my immortality become indistinguishable. Now, those are the moments we ought to be attending to, and we're not because we're hell bent for the future. Lady whose shrine stands on the promontory, pray for those who are in ships, those whose business has to do with fish. Say, pray, it's a prayer for the Christian community and for the leaders of the Christian community. And those concerned with every lawful traffic and those who conduct them. So a prayer for those, for, for secular activities and secular leaders. Repeat a prayer also on behalf of women who have seen their sons or husbands setting forth and not returning. And I, my understanding of this is that it's really a prayer f uh, f uh, for the communion of saints, all of those who have gone and who leave here are those who uh, care about them. And finally, also pray for those who were in ships Eliot's writing in the middle of the 20th century when there, was been, there had already occurred a good deal of bailing out of the Christian uh, uh, vessel. Also pray for those who were in ships and ended their voyage on the sand in the sea's lips or in the dark throat which will not reject them. In, uh, I, in this regard, I should read to you Ash Wednesday where he said, uh, Will the veiled sister which is the spirit of the church, the, the, the lady in blue. Will the veiled sister between the slender yew trees pray for those who offend her and are terrified and cannot surrender? And finally, or wherever cannot reach them the sound of the sea bell's perpetual annulus. And to my mind, that's a prayer for those outside of the Christian dispensation uh, for whatever reason, because of geography or culture or time, whatever. The Angelus is a bell rung three times a day, followed by prayers commemorating the Incarnation. After Eliot's beautiful, simple, heartfelt, sincere prayer comes section five, which uh, is quite a uh, a, uh, a jolt 
to communicate with Mars, converse with spirits, to report the behavior of the sea monster, describe the horoscope, haruspicate or scry, observe disease and signatures, evoke biography from the wrinkles of the palm and tragedy from fingers, release omens by sortilage or tea leaves, riddle the inevitable with playing cards, fiddle with pentagrams or barbituic acids, or dissect the recurrent image into pre-conscious terrors. To explore the womb or tomb or dreams, all these are usual pastimes and drugs and features of the press, and always will be. Some of them especially when there is distress of nations and perplexity whether on the shores of Asia or in the Edgware Road. Men's curiosity searches past and future and clings to that dimension. So a crude and pathetic attempt to escape from the chronological prison that we're in. A uh, born of a sense of uh, desperation almost to get out of the purely chronological order of things and crude and primitive and superstitious hokum uh, when all the while uh, another opportunity is uh, impinging on us that we are ignoring. But to apprehend the point of intersection of the timeless with time is an occupation for the saint. No occupation either, but something given and taken in a lifetime's death in love, ardor, and selflessness and self-surrender. Again, a tremendous juxtaposition of all of these little crazy, trendy, uh, attempts to to uh, tease oneself into believing that there's something else going on. But the occupation of a saint is to attend to the point where the timeless and time are intersecting. Where, where mortality and immortality are indistinguishable the Incarnation. And the saint does this in a lifetime's death in love, ardor, and selflessness and self-surrender. Again, the dying to self that is necessary precondition for the, for the experience of the Incarnation. Be it done unto me according to thy will is the... Is, is the uh, expression of the dying to self, which is the precondition for the incarnation. And th so that's what saints do. Uh, most of us are not saints. For most of us, the poem says, there is only the unattended moment. We might say the unguarded moment. The moments in and out of time. The distraction fit, lost in the shaft of sunlight. That's a wonderful way of putting it. The distraction fit, lost in a shaft of sunlight. The saint is attending, you see. The saint is attending to these moments. And for the saint, these are the moments. These are the ones that matter. But for most of us, the distraction fit, lost in a shaft of sunlight. The wild time unseen, or the winter lightning, or the waterfall, 
or music heard so deeply that it is not heard at all, but you are the music while the music lasts. These are only hints and guesses, hints followed by guesses. The rest is prayer, observance, discipline, thought, and action. The hint half-guessed, the gift half-understood is incarnation. So we have these hints, and Eliot has been from the very beginning of the quartets encouraging us to return to the place where we have had the hints and to require of it something else, to approach it in a different way, having missed the meaning, to approach the meaning and have the experience in a renewed way and understand what it was that was hinted at in those moments. But non-saints as we are, we're stuck with hints and guesses. So what we who live our lives among the hints and guesses must do, the poem says, is give ourselves over to the following list, and I'm sure listed in the order of its importance. Number one, prayer. Number two, observance. And I think the, what, what he means by observance is the most humble and the most uh, uh, orthodox meaning, which simply means to partake of the uh, observance of the Christian church's rituals. Prayer observance, discipline, thought, and action. Now, the, the Western world is pulling its hair out, saying, oh, what are we going to do? And T.S. Eliot says, well, let's try this. Prayer, observance, discipline, thought, and action. And the Western world says, does anybody else have any suggestions? <laughs> Prayer, observance, discipline, thought, and action. And action comes at the end of that list. It must not be left off. But it takes its significance by coming at the end of that litany. The hint half-guessed, the gift half-understood is incarnation. Here, the impossible union of spheres of existence is actual. Impossible, but actual. Here, the past and future are conquered and reconciled. Where action were otherwise movements of that which is only moved and has in it no source of movement, driven by demonic sonic powers. You see, the, the movement which, is, which uh, is simply something that is moved, but has in it no source of movement. In other words, it's agitation. And right action is freedom from past and future also. 
at the end of the poem, he really is interested in right action. Right action. What does right action consist of? And Eliot says it's freedom from the past and future also. The chain of the act, as, the, as Krishna says, the chain of the act is broken and it falls from us. Because it is not determined by past or future. He says, for most of us, this is the aim never, to, never here to be realized. That is to say, complete freedom from past and future to act in, uh, with freedom from past and future. So for most of us, this is the aim never here to be realized, who are only undefeated because we have gone on trying. We content at the last if our temporal reversion nourish not too far from the yew tree the life of significant soil. And for me, this is so much, this has so much to do with that other phrase of his of fructifying in the lives of others. And we keep on trying and inadequately living up to the calling. But content if our temporal reversion nourish the life of significant soil. And our temporal reversion is our, having these moments of illumination, the moments in the, in the rose garden, uh, the wild time unseen, the winter lightning, uh, those moments, and falling back from them into the routine, into the chronological, into the past and future uh, treadmill, and occasionally, being in an unguarded moment, having another one of those, and it being a hint and, and, and a hint that we guess about and maybe miss it or half get it, and it's really a hint of the incarnation. But it's a hint uh, half understood. It's a gift half received. And we fall back into the temporal uh, uh, treadmill again. And I think that's the temporal reversion. Moments of illumination, never quite understood, we miss the point of them, we fall back in. In an unguarded moment it happens again, we fall back. He says once we understand our condition and the, and the incarnation, uh, we acknowledge how imperfectly we attend to these and uh, become content at last if our temporal reversion nourish the life of significant soil. That's very modest. It's so much. It's, it's, it's a grand project stated so modestly to, to nourish the life of significant soil. Now, uh, the parentheses not too far from the yew tree uh, brings into play Eliot's double meaning of yew tree, which goes back to Ash Wednesday. In Ash Wednesday, the yew tree has been associated with death because uh, Ovid has the yew trees alongside the path into Hades, the underworld. But the yew tree was an, is an evergreen, which uh, has also been associated with the church, the church standing between uh, the living and the dead as a 
as a conduit to immortality. And Eliot uh, understands it both ways. In Ash Wednesday, uh, he had referred to uh, the time of tension between dying and birth, the place of solitude where three dreams cross between blue rocks. When the voices shaken from the yew tree drift away, let the other you be shaken and reply. So one is death and one is the church. So when he says not too far from the yew tree, he's saying our lives should be our lives of constant temporal reversion should be should nourish not too far from a sense of our mortality and a participation in the church, the life of significant soil. Wendell Berry said, uh, said uh, put your faith in the two inches of humus that builds under the trees every thousand years. Uh, it's that kind of understanding of, of the scope of the community. That's why, that's why the communion of saints is always a much, uh, is, is a helpful understanding, uh, much more so than, you know, the local congregation or the tribe or whatever. See, what is our community? What is our essential community? It's the communion of saints. You see, it's, it's fructifying in the lives of others that haven't even been born. And it's, and it's fructifying as a result of lives that have long since been. <coughs> the life of significant soil. Little Gidding is a small, remote village in England where there was a chapel uh, built by Nicholas Farrar and his family when they founded a small... Uh, Anglican religious community, community of prayer in the 17th century. Community was founded in 1625 and uh, broken up uh, by parliamentary edict in 1647 uh, and finally destroyed by the forces of Cromwell shortly thereafter and the chapel was rebuilt in the 19th century. And Elliot had visited there in 1936, and uh, as with his visits to uh, East Coker and Burt Norton, it becomes the locale for his final uh, meditation in the quartets. The story of the chapel at Little, Little Gidding is really a parable of the story of the church. Uh, there are moments when it all comes together, as we say. And uh, the community is, uh, is a prayerful community dedicated in the proper way to the, to, uh, the Christian pursuits. And then it's overtaken by history. Uh, something, uh, the historical forces sweep by and uh, it's uh, marginalized, destroyed, relegated to obscurity, confused. Uh, but it sits there and sooner or later, it's rebuilt. The chapel is rebuilt. Uh, but then it's still it may sit on the margins of things for some time. And I think Eliot, I don't want to be too didactic with the poem, but I think Eliot could be said to, to have symbolized by the chapel at Little Gidding what we might call the true church, as opposed to what uh, Charles Williams calls the apparent church. And it's the search for the true church that uh, is seems to be 
uh, set in motion in this poem. There's another pattern in the four quartets, which we've mentioned before, which is the pattern of the four basic elements, earth, air, fire, and water. Bert Norton's uh, element was air, and earth was the element of East Coker, and the dry salvages element was water, and little Giddings' element is fire. Eliot has dealt with all these images in his earlier poems. But because this one is concerned with fire primarily, I want to go back to a couple of things that he has said on that score earlier. The first is from uh, The Wasteland, a section called The Fire Sermon, taken from Buddhist fire, fire Sermon. And you'll, those of you who were here when we were studying The Wasteland will remember this section because we spent a good deal of time on it. But I'll just quote a few passages to, uh, to refresh your memory about it uh, and then uh, quote its concluding passage. Uh, 